You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Todd Herman. How are you? Mr. Huberman, I'm good now that I'm spending some time with you on a Sunday. It is mutual. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. So as I always like to start it, let's take it back. Let's take it back when you're three, four years old. Did you, you know, come out and you're like, I'm going to help people empower themselves. I'm going to be, you know, walking Superman, the Clark Kent glasses. Like that's how you were as a toddler. Yeah. No, not at all. I grew up on a big farm and ranch in Southern Alberta, Canada. Yep. And I'm a massive people person. I love the energy of other human beings. People would call mm-hmm. it maybe be, being an extrovert. And here I was stuck on this 12,000 acre farm and ranch in the middle of truly nowhere. And I just wanted to get around people. Just real quick. You were that way. It's like a three-year-old. You're like, I just want to be social. Yeah. 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 I loved, okay. I loved, um, I think it was a byproduct of well, I mean, some things are just baked into us as a parent of three kids. I always, I was a big believer in the nurture versus nature. Uh-huh. And now I think there is a real good balance between those two. Cause there's some qualities that my kids have that I'm like, listen, I can't take credit for that. I mean, that's just, you know, that's just an awesome quality of that little, little one, but I loved uh, performing. I loved being um, a bit of the center of attention, not because maybe some of it was because I had big family and I had two older brothers and stuff like that, but I liked being around people. That was just it. You know, I, and I was, and I think I was good at it. So it lends itself to do the work for the work that I do. Got it. And so tell me about the upbringing. Like what were you doing as a kid? Was there that entrepreneurial side to you? Like how did things start? Yeah. Well, there was a, definitely a super creative side of me. My mom was always working on you know, I wanted to build my own go-kart from scratch in my dad's shop. I wanted to do that kind of stuff. I won a, an art award when I was 12, when I sat down on a boring day on a Saturday with my sister's Teen Beat magazine back in the 1980s. Um, and there was this classified ad that said, hey, draw, draw your best rendition of this caricature of a turtle and send it in. And it was for the Minneapolis Art Institute, a very famous like distance learning art institute. And I, and I won the award for the best <laughs> submission. Wow. So super creative, which kind of lends itself, I think, to entrepreneurialism. But my, my upbringing was, I, I just wanted to be active and I wanted to be around other people. But my parents were busy farmers and ranchers, and they never had time to take all three boys and my sister to different leagues and stuff. So they threw me in all the time with my one older brother, Ryan, who is two and a half years older than me. So I was always competing when he, if he was in the under 10 baseball team, I was the seven-year-old trying to be scrappy and make it. And I didn't know any different. So it built up a ton of mental toughness for me and resiliency because there was no excuse. Plus I was a super runty kid. Like I was short and I wasn't big, but I always made the starting lineup. That's interesting because, you know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a famous book, Outliers, about how the people that benefit are the ones that are older and bigger because they get more focused on. And I always felt the opposite, too. I was about a year younger than everyone in my upbringing. So you had a few years, which is even more of a gap. And it it did exactly that. It wasn't about like, I'm the runt, so I'm never going to do anything. It was like, well, I got more of a challenge and just felt like then I never felt out of place because even if I was the smaller one, I was going to go for it. Yeah. And I think it was like my parents, I don't think consciously did this, but we just had this mentality in our family of 
so what? Like do it. And it's a bit of like a farm and ranch thing. Cause I mean, you're dealing with so many variables that you can't control weather and things like that. And it's like, listen, like you get to go play on your brother, your brother's team or you don't play at all. Like which one do you want? Yeah. And so it was very binary that way. And so I didn't have an excuse. And I also had this mentality is I always thought I was better than them anyway. Like there was, I I did have a, a bit of an arrogance to me, which annoyed the hell out of the older kids. Cause then I would beat them for the starting lineup, but yeah. So there was no conversation of, Oh, well, you know, it's okay. You're younger than them. And so there was none of that. There was no coddling by my parents, yeah. which was super helpful. And it's very much the way that I, I built my coaching and training company is listen, you say that you want this ambitious thing. Like, why are you whining to me about the conditions or the situations and circumstances that you're in? Like, this is literally a part of the process. And if you don't learn to love this, then you're going to be fighting against this friction all the time. And you're just dispensing attitudinal energy that could be put towards better use. Yep. You're just going to, yeah, you're going to make this a struggle for yourself in perpetuity. We talk a lot about like, especially as business owners, when I say we, my business partner and I, it's always going to be something. You're always going to be putting out a fire. You're always going to be dealing with the largest problems of the company. And by the way, those never end. Ever, yeah. ever, ever. ever. Biggest, biggest companies in the world are still dealing with massive, massive problems. Like it literally never ends. And yeah. so if you can't come to terms with it, and I don't know, not even come to terms with it. If you can't learn to enjoy it, you're going to be fucking miserable for the entirety of your career, which by yeah. the way, entrepreneurship is a choice. If you don't yeah. like it, go get a job. Yeah. I say to, uh, say to clients, cause, cause I still do work with, cause I've, I've built up and we'll get to this, but I've built up, you know, what is the lar- world's largest sports training company for peak performance and mental toughness. Yeah. And then I've also built up, I've taken all that stuff. Cause that's where I started was the entrepreneur, the sporting world. And I brought it into the entrepreneurial and uh, CEO and leadership space. And so we've got people in that world. And then we do get people from public figures, like, you know, whether it's politicians or it's people in Hollywood that come as well. But I talk to people all the time when they say, Hey, when you're working with someone one-on-one, like when they're going to, when they're willing to pay that price to, to work with you, what are you talking to people about? Like, whether it's an athlete. And I said, 80% of the conversation is conflict. And I tell people all the time, like I wake up in the morning and I want more conflict in my life. Yeah. I want more. Cause if you can't, take that attitude to this world, then it's going to break you. Right. And then all of a sudden you react, you react instead of respond. And so I call it conflict Cheerios. I'm like, this is just the shit that I eat every single day. And the most quality people that I've met, they have that same attitude of like, listen, these shoulders are built to carry heavy loads. So just stack some more weights on. I love the nugget react instead of respond. Yeah, exactly. React instead of respond. That's it's the epitome of what happened in COVID where the people that reacted, froze up, did you know, didn't go at it, failed. Like our pro- yeah. a lot of them are out of business when they didn't have to be. And the people that responded, our friend Curtis Christofferson is an example who challenged you know, yeah. on, you know, virtual training, thrived in situations that you shouldn't honestly technically shouldn't have. That he should have, you know, That's right. painted gyms that should have been devastated and goes online and now has made, you know, tens of millions of dollars with an online training program. And soon we'll get to reopen his gyms too. And now has a much bigger business. Yeah. It's part of it. So, okay. So going back to it. So it was football you were playing, right? We didn't actually cover the sport. Yeah. So a lot of assumptions. You say Southern Canada, it's always hockey, but I I, I think you had played football. (laughs) I was, I was one of those few Canadians who, I mean, I loved playing hockey, but it wasn't my, my sport. I played tons of different sports. I was a nationally ranked badminton player actually as well. But football when I was in high school was the one that I focused in on. And the two things that helped me there was I spent an enormous amount of time 
practicing what's called field vision. I didn't know it was at the time, but I would have a play drawn up. I had hundreds of plays drawn up and where people were in the middle of a play. And I would, it was flashcards essentially, because now being in this world for a long time, one of the things that people have thought you could never train an athlete is they call it court vision for a basketball player. Mm -hmm. They call it field vision for a soccer player or whatever. And it's just knowing where it's the classic line from, from Gretzky, you know, knowing where the puck is going to be and being there as opposed to where all the action is now. And then you get yourself out of position. So I would practice this and what, where this helps then is because I was a, a superstar when it came to like punt returns and kickoff returns. I like held the record for the most punt returns and kickoff return touchdowns in our province. And then the second thing, because what helps you with that is speed. So I don't know if you remember this, Huberman, uh, but Seinfeld is one of my favorite shows of all time. Okay. So uh, this is going to take some people back, but there's this one great episode with Mel Torme in it where Kramer buys a pair of these shoes that have a platform on the very toe of them. Mm-hmm. And, and it's because George was selling these shoes to help people jump higher. And uh, he had this guy, Jimmy, Jimmy jumps, Jimmy jumps, Jimmy jumps. And uh, anyways, Kramer kept on getting hit in the mouth for some reason. And people would mistake him for being mentally challenged because he was wearing these weird shoes and he was like talking with this slur. And uh, anyways, just for a frame of reference, I bought those shoes on an infomercial in 1991. And what they were meant to do was because the platform was on the toe, was it actually applied seven times more pressure to your uh, calf and your ankle. So if you were 150 pounds, you were now carrying the, that weight times seven on your ankle and your calf. So I wore those shoes and I did sprints and I did calisthenics and stuff like that to build up my uh, fast twitch muscles. So my point is I ended up being a a guy who could run a 40 in 4.4 seconds back in the early nineties, which is a fairly rare thing. So that got me a bunch of scholarships, helped me with my, my sport. And then yes, I got into playing college football. I love it with. With the shoes that people assumed are only worn by mentally challenged people. Yeah, it was. And you did. You looked weird. And the very first time I wore them, I actually overtrained. And they warned you with the training videos not to wear them too much or to go do a bunch of sprints. Just get used to them. And I had to wear my cowboy boots for a week and a half because my calves were so, you know, ballooned up. But yeah. um, that was my real secret to helping me achieve some of my football dreams. And I don't know about you, but you do these interviews too. Yeah. It's funny, like... In the past, like we talk about principles, like whether it's attitude towards things and there's, but there are some decisions that you made were like, that were like almost tactical yeah. and they blew it up. And that's why I actually rail, this is why I think, you know, what you guys do is so genius is you have this ability to talk strategy, mm-hmm. then you've got tactics, and then you've got this pillar of execution. Cause if you don't have execution between strategy and tactics, then who cares? You're just another one of those like mouthpieces who spouts off all these ideas. But mm-hmm. it's in the sinew of the execution of applying the tactic, which then you get more tactics. And so I'm saying this because there's a lot of people who poo-poo tactical people, but I can tell you that in the world of like athletics and then some of the you know big time executives that I've had a chance to work with, there's some tactical things that are the whole reason that can set up a lot of their differentiation or competitive positioning and their success. So yep. that was my little tactical thing that I did that really helped me in my sporting career. Yeah, sounds huge. It's a small tactic that was huge for you because yeah. it made that little bit of edge and difference, which is really what all of this is about. Is you know we're all kind of I won't say completely equal playing field. Genetics comes into play, etc. But like people in general are not that different, drastically different. You add these little tactics, these little things that just give you that slight edge. Sometimes, I mean, in entrepreneurship, sometimes it's literally just working that extra hour a day. But it's co- all these different tactics are compounding. 
And yeah. so it's remarkable what it can come out to. So, okay. So you got really into football. Did you think you were going to be a professional football player? Was that? I did. I, in fact, in my high school yearbook. So I achieved one dream last year. So in my high school yearbook, there's two things that I said. One, I was going to be the first Canadian to win the Heisman Trophy. Okay. <laughs> that never happened. The reality was I wasn't a good enough football player. I mean, I was, I was good and I was like, you know, super in my pocket of the world, but I wasn't as good as the other guys that were out there. And yeah. So, so that was one. And then the second one was, I was a huge lover of NFL films and their documentaries that they would do on players, like the gridiron stuff from the 1960s and seventies and eighties. And I said, the other thing I said was someday you'll watch me on NFL films. And that's the one that came true last year was NFL yep. films did a, a bio and documentary on the work that I've done in, in the NFL and the book that I wrote, the alter ego effect and being known as the guy who builds out the secret identities and alter egos of pro athletes. So yep. I achieved at least one of those two, which I think is a pretty good, it's a, it's a pretty yeah. good. No, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, you're the pick and shovel instead of the gold rush, man. You're not the guy trying yeah. to, you know, for fame, you're now helping everybody yeah. else achieve it, yeah. which is a pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So did you play in college? I did. I played in college. I had a bunch of scholarships around the United States and in Canada. Ultimately, I decided to stay in Canada and played at the University of Alberta. Lasted a year. I blew up my knee and my fibular head and my patella and stuff. Uh, so I was pretty much done after my first year and decided that I was really only at university for the football anyway. And it wasn't because I was I couldn't get school. I was a, I was a smart kid, but my ambitions were... I was such a pragmatic person that when I was in economics classes and business classes and psychology classes, I just had this feeling like this is all theory, like, yeah. because I've got enough life experience, a little bit of ego there as a young kid. We kind of all do that. Like some yeah. boys do. We figured it all like, out by 15. I get it. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that was one of my enemies I had to battle against, but I just didn't think that it was almost true. And so I went out and I started a business in 1995 called agrimall.com. It was about eight months before eBay started. And it was an online auction site to help farmers and ranchers, every farm and ranch, anyone who knows farming or, you know, even acreages, everyone has this machine graveyard where all these old machines go to die. And, but it's scrap metal, it's sitting there. And so I was like, wait a second, why don't I put on an online auction site where all these farmers and ranchers can get rid of stuff? and sell it online. Well, huge market issue there. You know who's not an early adopter of technology? Farmers and ranchers. <laughs> and this is before, and I was in my head, I was like, oh, this is going to be streaming video stuff. Yeah. Long before streaming video was a thing, but it was, you know, th- I think that's the beauty of entrepreneurship and what I love is just the massive ignorance it takes to launch some things. Thank oh, God yeah. you were ignorant. Yes. Because if you knew it all before, you would just see the mountain and you'd be like, no way. Whereas most entrepreneurs are like, oh, I just need to get to the top of that cliff. And then you get there and they're like, oh, it's a false mountain. And I got to climb to that one. And then it's another false summit, you know, so to well, speak. It, it takes that and that arrogance you've spoken to where it's like, I can do this. Like, totally. there's so many, and including my own experience, like so many times that I'm like, oh, you know, I, everybody else does this so stupidly. Like, why does everyone do it this way? That's just a dumb way to do it. And then you get up there and you're like, oh, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. It's really crazy that we didn't do it that way. It's like, you know, everyone's walking up a trail and you're like, but you can just go straight. And you start going straight. And as you said, you hit a cliff and you're like, oh yeah, they could have just taken yeah. that trail. <laughs> yeah. If, I mean, if you're not good at eating humble pie, 
entrepreneurship just is not the game for you. But um, I'd say it's a balance. It's humble pie with a, it's a continued unwavering arrogance because yeah, you yeah. need to get be humbled, but then you also need to continue to march towards it in a direction no one else does. If you want to be a higher level of success, you can go the same route and be, you know, yeah, have yeah. some level of success, but the true success has come from people that march against the grain and go do something completely out there. Like Steve Jobs investing the entire company's resources into creating a MP3 player. Than, than, yeah. And then a cell phone. It was like, what, why? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, I mean, I don't know about you, but I think that's the stuff that's, a, I don't want to call it X factor, but I would say that, I mean, I'm not the visionary type entrepreneur where I saw, I saw where things were going. You kind of said it before, pick an ax. I was more of a guy that was chop wood, carry water. Mm-hmm. And, and my philosophy was, I thought if I just kept on working every day, and getting better that I'm probably going to find some nuggets of gold or a vein that could lead to somewhere. And, and some of that is also just the stuff that I actually try to help people with, which is like, if you can't really enjoy the process of what it is that you're doing every day, then you're going to be a worn out person, whether it's an athlete, because that's very outcome-based thinking. And so you got to, you got to find the ways of really enjoying this process. But so I wasn't a great visionary. I've always been amazed by people who do have that vision for things, but I I don't know if it's an X factor, but I mean, that whole, I'm going to throw all my eggs in the MP3 basket was, you know, a brilliant move Yeah. or even Bill Gates with, you know, I don't want to build the hardware, but I want to own the software that's on it. And him seeing that and IBM not seeing that, you know, like that was, I mean, if, if IBM came back and said, no you don't get to own the software. I mean, then there, I don't know if there'd be a Bill Gates story right. as it was. Yep. hundred percent. Okay. So you start, you know, the original eBay for farmers <laughs> and how old were you? Like 19, it sounds like. So I was, I was 19. It was before my 20th birthday. Yeah. And did, did you move home after you decided not to continue in college or did you? No, I, I was, I stayed in the city that I was living in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada at the time. And I was there for about nine years before I moved overseas with my, with the company that ended up growing. Okay. And, but Agrimal didn't last very long because I needed funding for it. I didn't yeah. have the money for it. And yeah, I was just super green. But again, I learned more in that eight months of trial and error with that than I could have in a graduate degree in business, frankly, like it was, and just the conversations I ended up having, cause I'd reach out to people that were successful, you know, business owners or entrepreneurs in the Edmonton area. And Edmonton is, was a great city to be in because it's rife with like really great builders of typically manufacturing business. Cause it's so close to the oil and gas sector. But yeah. um, anyways, yeah, like it was, it was good. And then that went on to, well, I had to make ends meet. So I was working in restaurants at the time. I was a waiter yep. and I ended up uh, moving into like management. And then by the time I was 20, I actually won restaurant manager of the year for wow. this big company, which it's Earl's and Joey's. Anyone in Canada knows this. It's a different chain of uh, sort of contemporary, really cool place to go and eat. Like it was always, mm-hmm. the, it was a scene type place. But I always want to stay close to sports. So I was also volunteering at a high school, coaching the defensive backs. And this was like what launched my little sports business. And I was spending more time teaching the kids about the mental game because that was my strength. I was not, I'm not 6'4, 256 pounds of solid muscle, but my strength was my mental game. Some of it, you know, born out of where I grew up and some of it born out of, I had some, some pretty traumatic stuff happen to me as a, as a young kid that, you know, you don't really want to wish on any young kid. And it, just ruined my sense of self, self-worth, 
And, you know, I battled depression, suicide throughout my teens and twenties, actually. And so I got into reading more about mindset, mental toughness. I was just trying to grab onto anything that could help me. And through this process, I was, and this is actually going back into high school, I was learning how to get into the zone and flow state. So that's what actually propelled my athletic career was I was playing every game in the zone. And then when I got into this volunteering mode at the high school, I was talking to the kids about, you know, how they could do it as well. And they started getting phenomenal results, not necessarily just on the field, but it was actually off the field in the classroom. Uh And then people started asking me to like mentor their sons and daughters. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'd love to. And I wasn't even thinking it was a business. I was just like, yeah, sure. I'd love to help. And then they would say, well, how much do you want to, or this one lady, Deb, she asked me, well, how much do you want to charge for her son, Kirby? He was my first client. And I said, I don't know, $75 for three sessions. So this is in 1997. And that's when I started my coaching career was 97 long before coaching was a thing long before mental toughness coaching was a thing at the, like the juniors level. And I stayed at that price point for three years. So I wasn't like great at pricing. And my average, when I did my quick in taxes at the end of the year, my average hourly rate was $8 and 56 cents. That's how much I was actually making from this business. And I was working in the mornings and in the evenings. That's the only time that these young teenage kids would be available, but it got me a ton of reps working with like, you know, kids who wanted to make it Yeah. in the end. I tell the story. That was my one secret. And I think that's one of the things that people get lost on today is they don't want to go through the process of, of great, of learning. There is, yeah, everyone wants to be there before they're even here. Yeah. And um, everyone wants to charge the mega amount. And I'm like, listen, like I've now have 18,000 hours working with the most elite athletes on the planet. Like, you know, Real Madrid's a client or was a client for a long time. You know, Yankees, New York Rangers, guys on the PGA Tour, NBA, you name it. And Olympics, you know, podiums. And then you've got leaders in entrepreneurship and business. And 18,000 hours of one-on-one time, just mano a mano, me and you. That's a very different level of vantage point of what the most successful people are actually doing. So I really go at people like one of our differentiators as a business is the fact that a, we have the reps, but we use practical science mixed with the pragmatism of what people are actually doing. Not the stuff that you read in the self-help book from the guy who researched, because there's only so much you can get from research because yep. I'm not, but you know, when, when you and I are talking, I'm actually in your head. I know what you're actually thinking. And most of the time, the stuff that the elite are doing is very, it runs very counter to the stuff that you're reading in some of these books that are out there. And so the reps, people don't want to get the reps nowadays. And then in 2000, I reached out to the giant of the industry. His name's Harvey Dorfman. He wrote literally the Bible of the mental game world called coaching the mental game. It was a cold intro or a cold outreach. And I just said, uh, Hey, Harvey, we haven't had a chance to meet yet, but I've started this little fledgling business. I'm about two and a half years in, and I know enough to know that I don't know enough. (laughs) Like I know that there's a ceiling of stuff that's above this that I'm not getting from any books. And I've just been reading enough books on psychology and human biology and even kinesiology and behavioral economics were probably some of the best books because behavioral economics is applied psychology. And and that's where some of you, you're going to get some of the best stuff. So I said, listen, I'd love to come down to North Carolina because it was during the baseball offseason. He's known as the Yoda of baseball. This guy worked with all the biggest names. And I said, I'd love to come down and just organize your office, take administrative stuff off your desk. I'm sure you've got another book that you would like to write. And two days later, he reached back out and he said, you don't want to come live with me, kid, do you? And I said, is he like, I don't know you. And I'm like, no, no, no. I've got an aunt and uncle who live in the area and uh, I can stay with them. But 
you know, I've just read all this stuff and yours is the only stuff that makes sense. I was a former athlete and your stuff makes sense to me. So he said, all right, let's do it. So that was January of 2000. And I went down to uh, North Carolina. Now I lied to him. I did not have an aunt and uncle who lived in the area. <laughs> I stayed at a motel six that was about five miles from his house. It was $28 and 50 cents a night. And I maxed out my credit card because I wasn't making very much money. I didn't have I say that's money. actually pretty expensive for 2000. You could probably rent something in North Carolina for cheaper than that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a little bit before some, some better research of it was available online. Sure. Um, so yeah, so that's what I did. And on the eighth day, Roger Clemens came down to spend his day with him. Like there would be this yep. annual pilgrimage of the best of the best players would come down to see Harvey before he got taken up by another team. Cause he always made January available so he could be his, he could do his freelance work with the best of the best. And then February he'd be on the San Diego Padres coaching staff. And that's what he That's what he did his contracts. So Roger Clemens came in and, and Harvey invited me in to sit on that session. And I got to see the master work with arguably one of the greatest baseball players of all time mm-hmm. and see what he was actually challenged by. And then Andy Pettit came in and Craig Biggio, like the greatest baseball players of the time were all coming in and I got to sit in and see, and that took me from this, you know, I was, I was a pretty good mental game guy to like, just rocketed me up. And then Harvey started funneling uh, clients my way. And you talk about like, that's the thing that people don't get is nowadays this mentorship or apprenticeship attitude, like people are just missing out. Like they, yeah. they want to build it all themselves. Like if I'm a new market, if I'm a blank maker in the marketing game, reaching out to you and saying, Hey, don't pay me. Can I come into your company and be next to you for three months? I'm not going to be a bother. I'll just take stuff off your plate. You boss me around all you want. If yeah. I could just be around Eric's brain for three months and see how things work, that would be amazing. You know, like people don't do that very often. No, and it's actually illegal in the United States now. I can't even say yes to that. <laughs> they got rid of yeah. like they have all these apprenticeship laws because people are taking advantage. Like I get it's the problem is the lowest common denominator thing where a lot of companies were just getting interns and then go file papers and you can't be in my meeting. You can't come yeah. learn from me. So yeah. there, colleges yeah. can give college credit for it, but it's actually one of those interesting. They did it to protect people, but it's basically eliminating a huge part of how people that don't normally have access to that education could learn. So. I agree with you, though. It's, you know, we all did the same thing. I mean, I've spent a lot of time with people way smarter than me, just, you know, learning from them and, yeah. you know, taking, frankly, taking their time, but offering something in return or trying to be helpful. And it's such an important aspect. So I am curious, though, what gave you sort of the chutzpah to call the greatest in your field and be like, hey, I want to come move down from Canada to North Carolina and spend time with you? Like, how old were you at that point, too? So I was 25. At that time, five, yeah, twenty-five. And were you still working in a restaurant at that point? You were coaching, and okay, yeah, I had just left, and then I was basically full time in. I was full time in this private practice that I had, yeah. And so, I think some of the best reasons why we end up going and doing it, if you if we're honest about it, it was very much frustration and disillusion. Yeah. So one was again going back to this maybe farm kid pragmatism salt to the earth mentality of, of things. I just felt like the stuff that was written in these books was just crap yep. because it wasn't what I saw working. So it was that. And then it was frustration very much. Like it was, you know, like I had this, I always had this sense. You asked this at the very beginning, you know, when being three and four, like, did you think if I'm, and this is actually very much a quality of people that I've worked with anyway, they have this sense that they're meant for something special. Like yep. they have this sense for that. 
Kobe and I spoke about that before he passed away. I was actually driving up to Newport beach the day that his helicopter went down because we were bringing the alter ego training into his Mamba Academy. You know, the right. stuff that I'm known yeah. for is building. And right. I mean, and I've always used Kobe as one of these like great shining examples of someone who employed this idea. But, you know, I had this sense that there was something that was, that I was meant for, like that there was something that was not special or unique about me, but there was this, I know that there's something that I've got, but I was frustrated that I felt like I was under indexing in some way. And so that was it. And it was just, I read that book. I read Harvey's book, Coaching the Mental Game at the right time to kind of meet up with all these other forces of frustration and angst that I had. And that was why, why I did it. And it wasn't that. And my parents also gave me the best piece of advice I've ever gotten in my life, which was, you know, when I was leaving the farm, they knew that I wasn't coming back to the farm and be, you know, taking over. My other brothers went, went into that. But they, my mom said to me, she said, you know, hopefully we've given you like some good life lessons around character and integrity stuff, but we're not going to be able to help you on your professional career. So the only advice we can give you is whatever you want to go and pursue, find whoever's the best at it. Yeah. Only settle for the best and go and tuck yourself underneath their wing or go and learn from them. And that always rang in the back of my head. And that's always been my mentality around even the vendors that we choose for our business. It's like, why settle for average? Because it's not that you get half the results. You probably get 10% the results. Like you get a 10 yeah. X return on working with the best. Yep. And so spend the money on the best or spend your time with the best. And that's Harvey was just, he just resonated with me very differently. Got it. And so, you know, I know we only have a few more minutes here, but would love to hear. So the path from there. So you, you meet with Harvey, you really get that X factor. You start getting some clients. Yeah. That was 2000. So bring us up 21 years of this. Yes. Yeah, so Harvey started funneling people my way because he yeah. just had, didn't have enough time and he was just, he was the man. And then that continued to build up my roster of pro athletes. And because I built my business on the back of really one marketing tactic, and that was speaking. I was a 4-H kid. Anyone who's out there who knows 4-H, it's like agricultural Boy Scouts. And a part of the 4-H world as a, as a youngster is you had to do a public, you had to do a speech every year in a competition. And mm -hmm. I won actually my very first year. I was 10 years old. And uh, so I was a pretty good speaker. And that's how I built my business. And I built up this talk called the triune athlete, the mentally, emotionally, and physically tough athlete. And when you unite all three of these together, you end up creating the greatest possibility of performance for someone. So I did these talks and me standing on stage, it was a brilliant move. I didn't think it was, it wasn't, I didn't choose, choose it because it was brilliant. I chose it because that was all I had, but it was a brilliant move because speaking is one of those things. And you know, this it's the ultimate influence. It's, I think it's more than video podcasting and everything else, because I have seen people who are great at podcasting be terrible speakers. I've seen people who are great on video be terrible speakers. I've seen people who are great authors and writers be terrible speakers, but I've never seen a great speaker be a bad author, a bad podcaster, or a bad, you know, a video yeah. person yeah. because we call it a forcing factor skill. It forces so many other things together. So right. that's how I built the business. And the great thing about it was it actually launched my next company, which was no limits, which I ended up selling six years later to Chevron, which was a gentleman came up to me and he said, listen, I loved everything you just said. We're dealing with the exact same problems though in our company. Yeah. So can you use this peak performance stuff with working with business businesses, do you do you do this? And any good entrepreneur says, "Yeah, yeah absolutely, of course, all the time." <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and so that launched the next business, which was taking the same strategies that we were using and just put them with, in with a different avatar and group of people. And I yep. built up this huge performance and leadership company 
working with the Canadian government, Indonesian government, South African government. I worked with Nelson Mandela, built out the leadership program for all their black managers during the uh, what they called equalization of the workforce, which was the, the switch over from apartheid era stuff. So helping all the black leaders there with like confidence and leadership skills. And, you know, Chevron, Shell, like all these big companies, I ended up going in the energy space is the one who found me more than anyone. And I ended up selling this big leadership business to Chevron in 2007, all the while still working in this, in the sports business world and or sports world. But, um, you know, one of the key things that I found in that process of working with all these people individually was that the best of the best, most elite athletes kept on bringing up this idea of an alter ego and secret identity. And then that's what I became known for was building up and really helping performance at the identity level. Cause what people don't realize is when you change your identity, all things change with it. So while everyone yeah. else is talking about changing your beliefs or your habits, I'm coming in and I'm going to like the root force cause. Yeah. And when you change that, you don't need to go into what I call the tangled web area of beliefs because the moment someone hears that it's a belief issue, we're wired now psychologically and societally to think oh, that's a belief. Because everyone knows how hard it is to change a belief, but yeah. I can change your identity quickly using an alter ego, and it's a it's built into our human psyche. Like we all we've all done it when we were young kids. So I found this uniqueness factor, and then I came up with I wrote the book a couple of years ago, which has been like a great bestseller for us, and it's been translated yeah. into thirteen languages. But that's kind of like a very fast version of the entire yeah, process of the last you know seventeen years. But a part of that if there was things that stayed consistent was I always sought out apprenticeship. I still do. I still seek out mentorship. I only want to be around the best of the best. And just the the very thing that caused me to get into this world, which was some angst and frustration as a youngster, it's still a very much a part of our brand. It's how we show up. Like I am, I am not the most liked person in the personal development performance space because I will call you out or your company out when you're flat out telling bullshit to people. And uh, that's where we have something in common. We're in an industry that 99% of it is crap. So with it being a very needed real thing, so many people that are full of shit flock to the industry. It's kind of a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and you know this, right? Like, so some of the ways that we can build up our businesses is through affinity, right? Like, yeah. oh, so-and-so said this nice thing about me. And then you reciprocate that. And then yeah. you end up losing kind of who you are in that process. I yeah. just see, I, I got I to gotta coach some people out of that, like at, the, at that level. And they're giving up parts of their character, their value system that way. And I'm like, listen, like I'll give you a good example. Affirmations, scientifically proven through multiple studies to cause depression and depressive states in people. And yep. yet it's been one of these great pillars that the people in the self-help or leadership role- yeah. I've actually never heard that study, but like, I've always hated like the posters, the, ne- you know, the motivational posters, the affirmations, all those sides of things. It's like, I feel that causes Instagram more stress. Posts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So here's, so here's the nuance with it. And it follows again, the model of life. The greatest teacher is nature, right? There's growth and decay. That's the only two states in nature, you yeah. know, up, down, inside out. And so you can't have one thing. It breaks the scientific principle. You can't have one thing that's only good. Yeah. Like water is a good example. Water sounds great. But if you drink too much of it, hyperhidrosis and you drown yourself. Okay. So affirmations, when you're trying to affirm something to yourself, and this has been done at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, uh, King's College in London, the neuroscience and research lab at Stanford has done this study. Like I could go on and on that when people say affirmations to themselves, when they don't believe it yet, or they don't have confidence in the thing that they're stating to themselves causes them to actually move into more of a depressive state and could cause depression in people. 
Now, the only time affirmations have been proven to actually work is when you're affirming something that you, that you have confidence in some level of confidence in it reaffirms it and strengthens it. So, you know, someone coming out and saying affirmations are the way to go. They changed my life. It's like, Oh, you know, well, a, I rail against experiential teaching anyway. Yeah. I did it. And you can too. Yeah. Like using yourself as the anecdote. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why like you, you guys have hundreds of clients operating in so many different industries. You know, like we can't take the same webinar marketing formula from the e-com space and go and throw it over into the manufacturing world. Like there's things that have to be switched up. So, you know, that's my problem with the industry, the space, and now everyone's got their opinion and everyone wants to kind of climb back down the mountain and share their experience. And, you know, I always put those people in check because I'm like, have you done the reps? Show me the people that you've actually, who've actually come and paid you money to change this. Not that you sat around at the dinner table at a influencer dinner and you shared your thoughts on success with people, right? Like people pay Hawk media for marketing. So when people are giving marketing advice and someone hasn't come and paid you for your marketing advice, yeah, for me, you're what, just watered down. What I'd argue is someone that continues to pay you. We always say like we're month to month yes. they, 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 and people stick around. That's the symbol. You, anyone can sell anyone into something, but to, you know, I yeah. know because I, we obviously know each other. I know that you've had people working with you for years and years and years and years that have done really well working with you. So like that's yeah. the evidence. Uh, all right. So I know, again, I want to get you out on time. So two yeah. last questions. One, what's next? What's, what's on the future docket? What are you creating? So what's next is I'm launching actually a, uh, a software platform to help people in the coaching industry grow and scale actually the backend part, because one of the hardest parts of, you know, coaching or mentoring or building up group coaching stuff is, is the delivery side, the organization, the systems, the customer follow-up and the CRM side of things. So we're actually launching in a very short amount of time. It's actually in a week here from this date, May 16th. And so I've got two amazing co-founders who connected with me about this. And uh, so we've been building out the product the last year. So I'm super pumped. It's called upcoach.com. So I'm really excited about, yeah, that was, I went and bought that domain. Uh, The person didn't realize what, what the value was, what they had. So we got that. That's what we're doing. And then the other side of it is a lot of focus around actually family stuff. Like I've got three little kids and, Mm -hmm. you know, I've got, you know, I don't want to get my ambitions in the way of being a good dad to them too. So there's, there's some discipline there around pumping the brakes on. Cause you and I both know, like we can keep on being hungry hippos and just grabbing more and more and more and more. So it's the discipline of continuing to run my, my training companies and coaching companies and building those and getting the word out of alter ego stuff and then the SaaS platform. And, and I'm a pretty happy camper then every day if I'm doing that stuff. Love it. And last question, you're the guy to answer this more than anyone. What's one piece of advice for someone that really wants to achieve their dreams and something not cliche, like work hard, but something that you think they haven't heard that for someone yeah. that wants to really get there? So I don't know if it's something that they haven't heard, but uh, to reinforce this, that I really think that the the X factor in life is the quality of the contacts that you have. Mm-hmm. and because you and I, I mean, it's, it's such an unfair advantage that I could just text you and say, Hey, we're looking at doing this as a positioning statement or something like anything marketing wise or psychology wise. And you, you know, giving me your two cents in less than a day is, or connecting me with someone is such a huge advantage. So I would say to people that, I mean, when I take a look at all of my biggest growth periods, it was always because of the humans that I was around or the mentoring that I was in or some relationship that I had. So I think relationships are the grease slide to success. 
they open doors for you faster than anything else. They get you in the side door, they get you in the back door. And so while there's so many other skills that of course are super important communication skills, which are going to help you with your relationship skills, mm-hmm. I think, you know, just what am I doing every week to get around better people or to get better people into my Rolodex or now my iPhone contacts? That's, that's key. And the only way to make that work is what can I do for you? How can I make your life better? And I think that's, I think it's such a simple thing. Everyone can do that. And the the crazy thing is, is not many people do it. Like I don't get pinged as much as I should, frankly. Yep. Totally agree. Well, Todd, this has been awesome. Thank you for coming on Hawk Talk. Really appreciate it, man. Appreciate it, buddy. Of course. Talk soon. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free. Identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month-to-month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.